So thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here uh, this year for me. Uh, I've learned a great deal already from, from you. Um, so what I'd like to do today is present you some current research which I'm doing for my book on the future of war. Uh, Subtitle, It's Not What You Think. Um, and this is really about the privatization of war and how it changes warfare. All right? um, and this topic is a passion of mine because for many years before I became a scholar, uh, I was a soldier and paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Um, and then from here, I became a private security contractor, some would say mercenary, in Africa, where I did things that uh, for the U.S. government initially on contract that would have been traditionally outsourced to the CIA or to special operations forces. Um, this includes things like um, arms deals uh, from Eastern Europe to Africa, demobilizing warlords, uh, raising militaries and, and forces, um, even in one uh, occurrence helping stop a genocide in Rwanda and Burundi in 2004, before it happened. Uh, here are some warlords. This is right out, this is in Liberia, right after Charles Taylor had left. Uh, and I was there to, to try to uh, take his, the legacy forces and demobilize them and ra raise a new army from scratch. That was actually in the term of the contract. These are warlords. This is actually how they dress. Uh, pimping the style. Um, <clears throat> doing things nominally with the UN. Um, this is, I took some time off as I graduated at Harvard. I sent this back to our dean just to see what he would think. He was not very pleased. I don't know why. Um, and this is also what uh, sort of mercenaries do when they're out having a good time. Um, so the first thing about private warfare to understand is that it's as old as war itself. We have this notion that mercenaries, there's a stigma attached to it. Um, but that's wrong. Most of military history is, in fact, privatized. And for the entire time, it's almost never stigmatized. Uh, the Bible even talks about hired swords multiple times, yet never with any reproach. Mercenaries are common and popular in history because they are effective. They are effective because renting force is cheaper than owning it. Just like renting a car is cheaper than owning it for most people. And it, you know, having one's own standing army year-round is ruinously expensive. And we are normalized to think that this is typical when, in fact, it's a historical. Well, in the last couple hundred years have we seen that. Even going back to Xenophon's 10,000, Alexander the Great, he had five, when he invaded Asia Minor, he had 5,000 foreign mercenaries, and the Persians had 10,000 Greeks mercenaries on their side. <coughs> Hannibal's armies from the Second Punic War were mostly mercenary, including mercenary elephants, I suppose. In the Middle Ages, mercenaries were how you fought wars in Europe. Nobody was going to invest in their own standing army. It was too expensive, as I said. Even popes hired mercenaries. They even hired mercenaries to wage crusades. Not necessarily in Levant, which they may have done there, but just as in southern France against the Cathars or Cathars. 
And this is an, an episode where knights and mercenaries together made up the papal army, and they sacked the city of Bazir, and all the Christians, both Orthodox and heretic alike, fled to the church and still up for sanctuary. And the cardinal, who was in charge of the mercenary army, said, burn it down, God will know his own. And that army was mostly mercenary. There's also condottieri of the late Middle Ages and early modern era. Condottieri were mercenaries. But the word condottieri is old Italian for contractor. And the parallels between mercenaries of the Middle Ages and what we're seeing today are uncanny. Today we don't talk about mercenaries, we talk about contractors. Back then, just like today, they formed multinational corporations that are diverse in terms of their heterogeneous mix. See, when I was in this industry, I worked for a couple different firms, but I would be next working to somebody from, say, Ghana, somebody from El Salvador, somebody from the Philippines. All that mattered is that we had a command language and we had some basic skills. It was the same there. You had these transalpine companies. They'd have people from Scotland, Germany, the Levant even. Um, and you had like a CEO mercenary captain who was in charge of profit and loss. You'd have a contract with individual people, with their fighters, uh, just like today. The only difference between then and now is that they had a booty clause. And what the booty clause was, like, if you sack a city, you get such a percentage of the, of the loot. We don't do that today. Um, but here's an example of, um, they had companies that are called, like, Company of the White Star, for example, which had, like, 5,000 mercenaries. And this was led, this one was led by Sir John Hawkwood, an Englishman, uh, one of the most famous condottieri captains of his day. And he was loyal to Florence, who was his client, for 23 years. Until he died. Now, when we, when most people talk about mercenaries, they, 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 they always invoke Machiavelli, who calls them faithless, horrible, villainous, and that that stigma has ossified into received wisdom. But in fact, they are not. You know, he's an example of monogamous mercenaries. Um, we can talk about Q and A. Machiavelli was um, sour grapes because he got burned because he mishandled his mercenaries and turned on him. And that comes out in The Prince. But his charge that they are faithless is overwrought. The historical record of mercenaries is not as depicted by The Prince. His ideas at the time when he wrote The Prince in 1511 were considered, um, they were considered at all. They almost had no real influence. It, you know, the, the future of war for him for the next 200 years was still mostly condottieri and mercenaries. Uh, it's only in the 20th century that he gets resurrected and lionized. But his, he has many wonderful ideas, but his, his work on private force is not one of them, I would contend. So the years, what happened after Machiavelli, you had things like the Lenskinesh, you had the Swiss companies, you had all sorts of mercenaries. Mercenaries, again, were how you fought wars. Now here are some implications for when, what happens when you have, when, when force is commoditized. You have a market for force. The first is that it empowers the super wealthy. When anybody can afford the means of war, 
to wage it for any reason they want, any reason they want, it changes who has power in the system. And um, you know, so, for example, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church was a superpower in the Middle Ages. So were aristocratic families. So were city-states that were flush, like Florence or Venice. Um, so were, you know, there's all sorts of, anybody could be a, a superpower if you had the resources to hire and rent your own military. Mercenaries also were incentivized to start and elongate wars for profit. And this created more war. So if you can think about a, a system where you have unconstrained political rivalries, you had people making overlapping claims to the same parcels of land and people. You had like a bishop saying, Peasant McFate, you owe me your allegiance, and some prince saying, Peasant McFate, you owe me your allegiance. Sometimes those those overlapping dueling authorities would take their conflict and fight it out with mercenaries. Contract enforcement was a huge problem. There are really no courts you can sue your mercenaries in, and vice versa. And you had treacherous behaviors on both sides. It wasn't just, as Machiavelli contends, the mercenaries who are doing treacherous behavior, which they were. What they would do, for example, they would, and we see this today, they manipulate asymmetries of information between their clients and uh, themselves. So you, so for, for imagine this for a second, um, you're gonna get your kitchen redone at, at your house and you ask a carpenter to come over and he says, well, you know, you, you think 2,000 pounds is what you need, but you really need 30,000 pounds because of all these problems you don't see, trust me, I'm the expert, right? It happened, in, it happened back then. And it happens today, if you look at all the fraud, waste, and abuse claims that have been filed against companies like Dynacor, Triple Canopy, Black, you know, Blackwater in the Iraq and Iraq, Afghanistan wars. But also, um, clients did this too. So one famous trick is they would hire a mercenary company to do something big, and rather than pay the big bill, they'd hire another mercenary company for a little bit of money to chase off the other mercenary company. Or they're just deadbeats. The papacy was a deadbeat. People, when I was in the industry, they everybody wanted to work for the UN. They all wanted the UN to, to privatize peacekeeping to some extent. But the UN's really slow to pay, besides other ideological reasons why they wouldn't want to do that. Also, this is a key thing. Out-of-work mercenaries, what do they do? They become brigands. They prey on the, on the countryside to sustain themselves. It's the one type of supply that can generate its own demand. They even become racketeers. So, for example, um, they would go up, an army of mercenaries would go up to a city in Italy and say, you know, you have, you know, two days to give us all the gold or we sack your place. And so frantically the city runs around, comes up with all the gold they can, gives it to the mercenary captain, who says, great, we'll be back next month. This happened to Siena like 30 times in 70 years in the 14th century. So the bottom line is, is that when you have an active free market for force, you generally have a lot more conflict. And I, I won't say whether it's low intensity or medium or high intensity, but it, you have more conflict, which is the which is the concern. Now things started to trans war started to transform the Thirty Years' War, and mercenaries transformed with it. We saw for various reasons large battles, fifty thousand. Combatants in you know, the size of a small city uh, battling it out. 
most of which were privatized. Um, and what you had here is that as war became sort of this is like pre-industrial, but sort of industrialized, you had mercenary oligarchs who were not warriors themselves, like Wallenstein, for example, who created vast rental regiments and then gave them to the sovereign to use at his disposal. Um, and so you had, but during this time, uh, there's a lot of horror. This is one of the most bloody wars in European history, and a lot of it was due to rogue mercenary units. Uh, so much so without, you know, this is Professor Peter Wilson were here, he could explain it to us, but, you know, by the time of Peace of Westphalia, there would seem to be a tacit agreement that mercenary use had gone too far. And for some different reasons, which we've been discussing Q&A, states began to invest in their own standing armies, costs be damned, uh, in places like France and later Prussia. Um, and and some, there are some reasons for some technology as well, but the, the state mon literally monopolized the market for force by having its own standing militaries. They outlawed mercenaries, and this did two things. This created the stigma against mercenaries, which we exist today. Mercenary is synonymous with villain or murderer or something like that. It also, um, it also left their non-state competitors defenseless. Because if you're a, a pope or if you're a rich family, the market's been dried up. There are no more mercenaries. They've chased away. They've chased underground. And this is the beginning of what many in international relations see as the age of sort of, you know, state sovereignty with the Westphalian order. Whether that's real or not, we can discuss in Q&A. But mercenaries start to gradually decline around this time frame. They did not completely disappear until the mi middle of the 19th century, both mercenaries and privateers. And they didn't disappear, they just went underground. Right? So again, the, the relationship between force power and world order is that states sort of emerge as sheriff and the so-called Westphalian order, contentious label. Um, but states use the monopoly of force to guarantee their supremacy, so much so that 400 years later, we think it's, we, not we even through, but many scholars normalize this as the way political order should be. It's a state-centered order with national militaries. And only states have the privilege of waging war, codified in international law and the laws of war, which is essentially Westphalian conflict, and even becomes the definition of the state, looking at scholars like Max Weber. Um, so this, and it's sort of normalized, I would say, through, it's been exported around the world through colonization, etc. So without mercenaries, again, non-state actors are left defenseless, and the states go unchallenged for their supremacy. Uh, and this is a gradual process. So this is, war becomes exclusive interstate affair. This is the birth of conventional war. This is the warfare of CrossFit, the warfare of CrossFit. He does talk a little bit about non-state actors in book six of On War, when he looks at the guerrilla campaign in Spain, but that to him is still sort of a fringe element of warfare. Now, mercenaries are coming back after a several century hiatus. I know I was there for much of this, but that's not all. 
And it started happening around the time the Cold War sort of was ending. The first crew that did this was like so this company called Executive Outcome. This was a post-apartheid South African corporation. It was a mercenary corporation. It was a private army. They did things like kill Unida, the rebel group, uh, and Angola. They went to uh, Sierra Leone. Some other groups in the 90s came up, like Sandline International. Um, but it really, the market didn't really take off literally until the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this catapulted the market for force into uh, sort of full-on resurrection, if I could say that, uh, especially the notorious Blackwater and the notorious, you know, we think of contracts, we think of Nisor Square in 2007 when Blackwater contractors killed 17 uh, Iraqis at a traffic circle in Baghdad. Uh, and basically were sent home without any accountability, um, which infuriated a whole region. This has sort of become the new American way of war, or an element of it, I would argue. This in blue shows you troops, red as contractors. The past century, contractors, like in World War II, contractors were 10% of the workforce. In Afghanistan, they were 50%. There was a one-to-one -one ratio. For every troop, there was a contractor. And in Afghanistan, it was closer to 70%. Right? 70%. Now, please note that when I say contractor, I mean all contractors. And only about 15% of contractors in Iraq or Afghanistan were trigger pullers. Most contractors were you know, making food or repairing trucks, doing great innocuous things. I'm really, I'm, I've, my research focuses on the lethal contractors, but the fact that the U.S. has moved to a contracting model for, where, for war is astounding. And the reason that this happened, it wasn't a deliberate policy, it's like many things in Iraq and Afghanistan, it just sort of evolved that way, for lack of perhaps planning. They, initially, policymakers in 2002, under George W. Bush, thought that both wars would be quick and easy. And when they proved that they were not, the US all-volunteer force found it could not recruit enough volunteers to fill the billets. And so policymakers had some ugly options. They could either withdraw and concede defeat to Al-Qaeda, which they didn't want to do. They could have a Vietnam-like draft to forcibly fill all the vacant slots, which would be political suicide. Um, or they could just contract out the difference. And they ended up contracting out the difference. Small at first, but over time, more and more and more, to the point where over half the force was contractors, and they weren't even all American. The majority of contractors were not even American citizens. You had other, like, non-citizens fighting U.S. wars. Contractors also did more than dying. Blue were troops, red are contractors. As the war progressed, they flipped. Initially, troops were taking the casualties, now it's contractors. So I want to take a guess as to what kind of contractor was getting hit most. Truck drivers. Truck drivers were, exactly. Truck drivers and being ambushed. Following that, probably security, like the trigger puller types, because they're in the line of fire, but it's actually, it was truck drivers who were getting, who were getting ambushed. Now, this is an idea that came out this summer 
by Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, that we should go to a 100% contracting model in Afghanistan. He proposed this idea that we replace all troops in Afghanistan by mercenaries and private military contractors. That would presumably be his own. Um, th this idea might sound absurd, but it got a lot of play and airlift in Washington this summer. And it still could happen because pre President Trump could change his mind at any moment. Uh, so, uh, and he's also tight with Steve Bannon. He's running for Senate in Wyoming now uh, with the alt-right campaign and Steve Bannon's insurgency. But this is the, the fact that, that he, that not just this idea was floated, but that Eric Prince, who's kind of toxic in Washington, reputation-wise, could float it and get the time of day is an interesting data point. I would say. Now, here's the issue, is that after the U.S. was sort of, U.S. during Iraq and Afghanistan was a monospony, meaning that it was, it wasn't a free market for force. You had one buyer with a lot of supply. And that buyer has market power to shape the industry as they wish, which the U.S. didn't really do, unfortunately. But now that the U.S. is no longer hiring that number of contractors, the question is, where, where have they gone? And most of them have, they're private sector entities looking for new clients. And so, as they say, the genie has left the bottle. And they're all over the world. Now, the market right now is bifurcated. It's taking, there's two courses, the market's splitting. One course is sort of what we call overt private military actors. And these are like, um, Aegis and uh, Olive Group and maybe Garner World, although I don't consider uh, sort of mall cops to be private military contractors. Private military contractors are doing, they're armed civilians in war zones doing military things. It's not the same as guarding uh, somebody's house. But these, these actors here uh, reject the mercenary label and they only want to work for legitimate clients. Governments that are legitimate, multinational corporations, things like that. Um, they actually, they're organizing themselves to obey uh, international, international standards, ISO standards 20, of these 28,007 and 18,788. I am not enough of a business scholar to make sense of what that is, um, but they're trying to legitimize themselves. There are, some of them also volunteer to be certified and audited by external groups. One is the American Society for Industrial Security, based in Washington, D.C., which is a huge trade association. And the second is a Swiss initiative called the International Code of Conduct Association. And this is a, a, a compendium of governments, NGOs, and private security companies who come together and agree on a code of conduct that, re that respects international law and human rights. And some of the bigger firms have already submitted to being audited by this, which is a big deal for them. Um, and the business model is, because everything has to be profitable, is that if you're certified of, as quality, you'll attract clients like ExxonMobil and the United States of America. But we're not sure that model is working for them. Okay? Now this industry is located in Washington, London, and New York, um, and Dubai. Generally the pay is kind of lame. Um, if you were to join such a firm, you would probably get maybe twice your military salary, but you don't get any, well, here's what you don't get, you don't get a pension, 
and you don't get any medical support. So you get injured in the field, they will patch you up so you're like not in the ICU, but then they send you home immediately and then you're on your own, you're on the street. So you, so contractors, despite all the, the ballyhoo, they don't make that much money. Um, now over, I think this is dwindling right now, that's the danger. So what else is going on? We have a lot of covert actors who sell firepower and plausible deniability, which is pretty key in an information age. Um, this is, that's a word of mouth business. And um, the way they recruit is it's based on network. So if I got a, a contract from say an oil company or somebody, I would then hit up my contacts and usually American military, maybe UK or Commonwealth military, we kind of mirror the five eyes, actually. Um, and uh, we assemble a team. We, we, we sort of get things going. There's other networks as well. There's the Russian speakers. We see them in Syria and Eastern Ukraine. We see Latin Americans, like ex-Special Forces from Latin America, uh, were hired by Abu Dhabi to, to initially to protect oil infrastructure. But now they've been deployed to Yemen to kill Houthis. Um, you have executive outcomes. Remember that, that first mercenary? They, they're still in Africa. They're in, uh, I, I joke it's an alumni network. But uh, two years ago, uh, the government of Nigeria secretly hired them, or the remnants of them, to go after Boko Haram. And the Nigerian military, which had for six years struggled against Boko Haram, the mercenaries came in with the military and cleared them out in weeks. In weeks. Didn't didn't solve the problem, they just pushed them into their neighbor's backyard, which, you know, happens, right? Um, but that happened in weeks. Um, this industry is, uh, is, you know, based in conflict markets. These loan mercy show up places like Herbal uh, or Dubai, or Uganda has become a hub for this recently as well. The pay is variable, but the risks are high. So one contract payment is still a problem. Maybe you... There's what's going on, like what Syria did with Russia, Russia companies said, look, if you can secure these oil fields from ISIS, we will give you the, uh, the lease of that. And the, then the, uh, the, the Russian oil company would hire this group called the Wagner Group, who would then, some mercenaries, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, who then did just, did just that. So they, they had a joint venture with the government of Syria, the client, which is an interesting way to get around that. These are, these are, you know, the key takeaway from this is that in the future, the market might go one way or the other, but if you're, if you're an overt actor, you can quickly become covert one and vice versa. There's no magical bright line between the two. Here's some of the covert hotspots we've seen in just in the past two or three years. And this is based on known reporting. Um, but this is no longer America and Iraq, which is how a lot of Americans think about this industry. This industry is now truly globalizing, and it's, it's rising. It's not covered in the news because it gets eclipsed by terrorism and et cetera. But um, this is, and you know, this is where we're seeing it right now. And we're seeing it across the four, four or five domains of war. So of course we've talked about land, private military. There's also C, privateers. And what, the way this works is that they sit on an arsenal ship in the middle of like the Gulf of Guinea or, or the Gulf of Aden. And if you're a freighter going through pirate waters, they will helicopter over like a squad of private marines, if you will, 
um, or tender them over, and they will they will harden your ship with concertina wire, and and protect it with fifty cal you know fifty cal machine guns, and once it's called embarked security, and once the ship is passed through pirate wires, then they go back to their arsenal ship, and uh, leaving it to the U.S. Navy officer here, I am told that um, you know Arleigh Burke destroyers don't want to sit around chasing zodiacs in Gulf Bay, so this is kind of not a bad way to go about things. We're also seeing them in, uh, we're seeing private air force in terms of kamikazes potentially, and cyberspace. There's this thing called hackback companies, which are like a mercenaries of cyberspace. All right, let's move forward. Why are they coming back? Why are mercenaries coming back? For uh, several reasons. One is that um, it's still cheaper to rent than to own. That's not change. And for strong countries, it has a couple of advantages. One is it gives plausible deniability. So if you want to do something that's politically risky and don't want your own soldiers caught doing it, you can hire mercenaries because if something happens to them, they are what we call a kite. You just cut them away. Um, even if they say they're working for you, nobody can fully believe them. The second is if you have a, a rich country that wants to have forced projection but doesn't want to bleed, mercenaries or contractors are useful, whether you're the United States of America and Iraq or you're Abu Dhabi. Last, now, for weaker countries, um, it enables you to engage in war. Or if you're a private military, if you're, sorry, if you're a multinational, you now have access to the means of war. Uh, there's also niche services. If you want to rent an MI-24 Hind helicopter squadron for two weeks, you can do that. When these mercenaries, when Nigeria hired these mercenaries after Boko Haram, they didn't uh, show up with like Kalashnikov, they showed up with like attack helicopters. And, um, you know, or you want to rent a special operations forces team of high quality, that's something you could rent now in the marketplace. Also, there's a, they offer loyalty. So when Gaddafi was being, right before his demise, he, he surrounded himself not with tribal militia who he did not trust, he surrounded himself with mercenaries who were loyal to his paycheck. And this is also not new. I mean, Ken, King Henry II did the same thing here in the 12th century when faced with an, a rebellion of nobles. So the implications, now should this trend line continue, and I think it will, because there's nothing really to, to stop it, in my opinion. First of all, regulation is really difficult. Some would say, well, it's international law. We can make it illegal. Well, how, assuming there will be a Geneva Convention in our lifetime that deals with civilian armed co contractors or combatants, which I don't believe to be the case, who's going to go into Syria and arrest all those mercenaries? Is it going to be the Royal Marines? No. Is it going to be the United Nations? Probably not. So it's really difficult to enforce, and this favors covert actors. I think also, as we go forward, the stigma will fade. It's already fading, in fact. Um, right now, <clears throat> people in this industry bend over backwards to avoid the M word. Uh, they will say we're you know, security contractors, or we're, we're military contractors, or my favorite euphemism is contingency contractor, which means nothing. Um, but I think it's eventually going to become, after a few decades of this, it will become more normal. More substantially, like the Middle Ages, if money can buy firepower, then the super wealthy can become superpowers. Right? ExxonMobil can get its own army. 
ask him oligarchs, ask him megachurches who want to do humanitarian interventions and good around the world. The problem is, if you have a megachurch doing a humanitarian intervention in Syria, does that, for example, suck the U.S. or the U.K. further into a war in Syria? Um, this also opens up the possibility of wars without states. Just say you have, I'm making this up, the extractive industry likes this industry for obvious supply and demand reasons. Just say you have two mining companies fighting over a mine and they, they start using mercenaries and this creates, um, this creates lateral escalation and a security dilemma. Lastly, if conflict is commoditized, then the logic of the marketplace and strategies of the suit now apply to warfare, which is really strange. So let me unpack this a little bit. It's like Clausewitz meets Adam Smith, if you have truly a free market for force. On the supply side, which is mercenaries, we know that they can elongate and start wars. We know that they can they act as predators when they're unemployed, um, and they can be engaged in racketeering. They also engage in praetorianism, and they can capture states. We saw this during the Middle Ages, for example, where a lot of condottieri became rulers for, for a dynasty. For example, the Sforza family in Milan. That could happen today. They could take over you know, Eastern Congo and hold it. Um, on the demand side, on the client side, this is what burned Machiavelli, is that new strategies exist where you can say bribe your enemies armed forces to defect. Or what you could do is retain all the forces in the area so that they don't have a defense. So if you're going to invade them, the first thing is you retain all the, the, the mercenaries so that when you invade, as surprising them, there's nobody that they can retain. Now both of these suffer from poor contract enforcement, which can lead to treachery. Again, there's no court of law you can go to and sue. And uh, you have issues of mercenary lateral escalation and security dilemma. It's like any weapon system. Uh, if a lot of forces start, if a lot of clients start to build up their mercenary arsenal, then others imitate that. So implications for the changing character of war are some of these. There's many we could discuss. One is that this lowers the barriers of entry and expands who can engage in warfare now. But it's not just states, it could be anybody who's rich enough to do this. Second of all, is that strategies for private war, these are, these are quintessentially unconventional strategies that CEOs may know more about than flag officers. And this creates a strategic vulnerability in how we think about, articulate, and plan for future conflicts. And lastly, this trend is occurring on autopilot. There's, there gets minimal attention, and that's the way the industry likes it. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any structure or agency, in my opinion, to prevent um, a future market for war in the 21st century, uh, which can have you know, political ramifications for who has power in the international system. So what would a world with private warfare look like? So one of the things I've taken up to recently, I'll end here, is I've taken, I find sometimes it's easier to talk about new ideas through fiction than nonfiction. And I've written two novels uh, for HarperCollins depicting a future of war 
when anybody who's rich enough can hire mercenaries and who they are, where they come from, and how those contracts work, and what kind of wars would look like if it's wars about states, that is what the, the, the Tom Locke series is about. This actually began as a memoir I was writing a long time ago. My agent was like, no, 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 no. If you write that, you'll be sued to death. So perfect fiction, and, that's, and we did, and we turned into a nice series. So um, that's done very well. And you know, McChrystal liked it, and so did uh, Stravitas, uh, of all people, plus some good criticism. So with that, I will close it at quarter of and open up to questions.